0: Invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter nine this morning. Mark chapter nine. We are going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, verse by verse, section by section. Uh, it is the eternal Word of God, and uh, we uh, we look at it very closely uh, because this is God's Word to us. These this Gospel, of course, the Gospel of Mark is is teaching us much about our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, so it's been a privilege uh, this morning. We are in the middle, uh, just about the middle of the gospel in chapter 9, and we're in, the, we're in a section where Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. Um, while Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, he has time, or he makes time, to give some private instruction to his disciples along the way, sometimes in cities or, or sometimes along the road. Uh, but he's going to be telling them exactly what's, what's going to be happening to him on his way to the city of Jerusalem, or what's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. Specifically, what Jesus does in this text is he predicts that he will die. And Mark records Jesus predicting his own death on three occasions. It's in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. And when Mark records this for us, it always follows the same pattern. It starts with Jesus predicting his own death. People are going to kill him, and he's trying to make the disciples aware of that. But then uh, he will, it will always be followed by a failure on a part of the disciples. Today we'll get to see another failure from the disciples. Uh, But then the third part of the pattern is after the disciples fail, Jesus will take time to teach them. He teaches them specifically what it means to be a follower of his. He responds to their failure in teaching them. And so Mark's purpose in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is not to highlight Christ's sacrifice alone... Uh, But also to show his readers how Jesus' sacrifice must change their lives, how it must change their lives. And I want to just illustrate this with you for a moment from kind of some current events in our culture, and then we'll get into the text. This past week, the death and funeral of Senator John McCain has grown national attention. Ceremonies for him have taken uh, taken place all across the country from the East to the West Coast, from the West Coast to the East Coast, I should say. And people have given testimony to many of his admirable qualities. Now, I'm not here to tell you this morning that, that he was perfect. I, I, don't, I don't, don't know him, but I do know enough about hum, human beings to know that there is no perfect person. We all are sinners through and through. But having said that, um, there is no question that he impacted many people with his life. His service to our country, for instance, as a soldier, and then a prisoner of war, and then uh, as a U.S. senator. His fatherly love, I heard many tributes to that, and his public testimony of faith in Christ, some of those were his admirable qualities. But imagine for a moment that you were listening to, uh, listening to one of those memorial services and you were hearing testimonies of his life. There are two ways that you might hear the testimonies of his life. You might hear them and be impressed with his life or the abilities of the person giving the eulogy. Or another way of hearing this would be to inspire, be inspired to live a life of sacrifice, sacrifice and faith. As a matter of fact, I would probably argue that you really have not grasped the significance of his life unless it changes you. As we come to the Gospel of Mark today, we, we will hear of the great personal sacrifice of the perfect Son of God and be challenged by the Holy Spirit through the the pen of Mark to follow that wonderful example. And I want to suggest that you will not fully grasp the significance of Jesus' life and sacrifice unless it changes the way you live day by day. And that'll be Mark's point in the text we're gonna look at here today. Now, before we get into the text, let me just give you a brief word of praise to God for something. So I was preparing the sermon this week, uh, you know, and even this morning, I was thinking about what we're gonna uncover here today in the text, and I just thought, there could not be a more appropriate text for the Lord to pick out. You know, I I choose the sermon, the the passages, we just go passage by passage, and the Lord kind of works out when it hits our church. But this morning, we are gonna hear a text about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what a fitting text to work through on a communion Sunday. We're also going to hear a sermon where Jesus challenges us to minister to children. I thought, what a fitting service for the Lord to choose a text that would remind us of the opportunity to serve children. As a matter of fact, I'm not much in the sermon titles, but if I had a title for the sermon this morning, it would be this, be great, serve children. Be great, serve children. And so let's look at Jesus' prediction of his own death in verses 30 and 31. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days he will rise. The first part of the text here, Jesus predicts his own death in in, in this moment of private instruction as he's passing through the regions of Galilee. Much of his ministry has already been performed in this region. He's been there quite a significant amount of time, but now he keeps telling the disciples over and over again that he is going to die. The way he frames it in this text, this prediction, is he says that he is going to be delivered into the hands of, of men or into human hands. Now, what was interesting to me, uh, at least initially as I looked at this text, is that word delivered. The word delivered could be translated be handed over to. But I think what, what is interesting to me is that the actor, the person who's doing the handing over, is not diagnosed in the text. The doesn't, text doesn't come right out and tell us who it is. I think that it's implied, however, that the actor who hands Jesus over. To human hands is God the Father, God the Father. And so what we see here is Jesus predicting a time where there's an exchange between divine hands to human hands. And, of course, this reminds us of other places in the Gospels where we read of the divine necessity. Jesus knew that it was God's sovereign plan and will that he would be handed over. He would hand him over to the hands of men. Then we see in the text, in this prediction of his death, what human hands do to Jesus when they get him. They kill him. They kill him. And then he rises three days later. Before we go too much farther in the text here, I think that this type of language is meant by by the the gospel writer, Mark, to encourage his Roman readers about the persecution that they are enduring and facing. And he's encouraging them, Encouraging them, in particular, with the fact that Jesus' death was not an accident or a catastrophe. Now, Jesus knew all about his death, and his father planned it. His father delivered him over. But Let's see how the disciples respond in verse 32. Okay, uh, As is normal in Mark's gospel, we'll see that the disciples fail. Look in your Bible at verse 32. It says, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Well, the failure of the disciples come in two waves. The first wave is found here in verse 32. And the way I just summarize this is the disciples are dull and reluctant. Dull and reluctant. Now, on several occasions, we've seen the disciples are kind of a dull group of followers. Okay? Of course, we would probably be similar. but we've, we've actually read the phrase over and over again, they did not understand, they do not understand, they do not perceive, they do not understand. Now, Mark adds to that here, Jesus adds to that here, by saying, and they were afraid to ask. Okay. Now, unfortunately, we don't know why the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant when he kept saying that he was going to die, human hands would kill him, and then he would rise three days later. We don't know why they won't ask. Perhaps they're beginning to feel a little bit like failures, <laughs> We just keep asking him, and keep saying that thing like, "Don't you understand it? we don't understand." See the imagery here in my my estimation is, is like someone Jesus is like someone who has a personal medical diagnosis to share with his family members. Perhaps you've had to do this before, you have some you know some disease or something you've got to share with family members, and so you share your condition, and they completely misunderstand the nature of your disease or your diagnosis. Sometimes family will just blow it off and suggest, well, it's not that bad. It can't be that bad. They ignore what the doctor's diagnosis is Now, Now imagine if you were sharing this, your diagnosis with them, you were saying this to them and they didn't even listen to what you had to say. And they just moved along. It's like modern equivalent. It's like turning on the TV. That's a completely unacceptable response. But it's only the beginning of the failure of the disciples in this text. They are dull. They are reluctant to ask. But then in verses 33 and 34, the second failure I describe this way, they are also insensitive and status-grabbing. Look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I think I would remain silent, too. Verse 33, Jesus takes the disciples into a private home in Capernaum. We don't know where it is. It might be Peter's home. It might be his house again. If you still know. And he asks them a question. He says, what were you discussing on the way? You know, after I said that stuff about my death and resurrection, what were you talking about? Where discussing could be translated, what were you arguing about? What were you debating Now, Jesus will do this often. I've noticed he's done it often in in the gospel where he asks questions to point people to the the reality of their own sin. In fact, they misunderstood something. I just wanted to point out a few of them to to you that we've already seen. I I read through Mark 1 through 9 this week. I was looking for questions that Jesus asked. Look, Look at Mark 4. I won't give you all of them, but look at Mark 4 and verse 40. You might remember this narrative here where Jesus uh, is asleep on a boat and the disciples get afraid. They don't know what to do. And so they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus rescues them and helps them. And then he closes with two questions. He says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Those questions are meant to challenge and convict. Jesus is a master communicator and he will do this all throughout the gospel turn over one chapter in, in chapter 5 in verse 30 you remember the miracle where jesus is on his way to heal jairus's daughter but then someone comes up along beside of him touches him unaware to the crowd touches his garment and jesus knows what's happened this is a man, a woman with an issue of blood and notice what he does at the end of verse 30 he said who touched my garments and what happens with that question? I mean, Jesus asked that question. Immediately the woman knows she's in trouble. She'd done something without permission like this, breaking the law. There are other places he used questions. The very next chapter in chapter 6 and verse 38. Flip over there. I just want, probably my favorite question in the gospel so far. Well, I've got a lot of favorite questions, but this is like really good. Chapter 6 and 30, verse 38, he's. He's got 5,000 men gathered together, and he he needs to feed them. He's got no resources, so he asks the disciples, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? They answer that question. And then just two chapters later, chapter 8 and verse 5, same sort of scenario now in Gentile Gentile surroundings. 4,000 men. What questions he asked ask him? Mark 8 and verse 5? How many loaves do you have? Same question. Well, some things happen. He provides for them as well. And then the disciples get in a boat. They make their way across the boat. And, and they realize that uh, someone blew it when the disciples had failed. They didn't bring bread for the trip. You remember these stories? They have one loaf in a boat. So look at uh, what Jesus asked them in chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So Jesus masterfully uses questions to convict and show the disciples what they need. Later on in verse 19, he says, How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Verse 21, he says, Do you not yet understand? How about the questions in chapter 8, verse 27 and 29? End of the verse. Who do people say that I am? It gives the disciples a chance to answer that question. But then in verse 29, he says, now, who do you say that I am? My favorite question from last week was when a father was asking for Jesus' help. And Jesus responds at the very beginning. and says, if you can you can't. This is overwhelming evidence to me that our Lord strategically used questions to push his disciples, to get them to a place where they would see the fact that they did indeed misunderstand him and that they needed him. I think this can be a useful way for us to encourage fellow church members and relatives about their behavior as well, asking them specific questions about their behavior. Now, let me give you a little bit of pastoral advice here. And this is just a quick application. Okay? We should start this process with prayer. Humble prayer, asking God for a loving, gracious attitude that will not judge others. Then we need to check our motives. Am I just angry with the person? Am I just jealous for some reason? Then we can ask them a, a concise question about their behavior and listen to their explanation. It may be that we simply have misunderstood things or something. But being a member of Colonial Baptist Church, as a member of Colonial Baptist Church, what that means for me is I'm opening myself up to any member in this assembly to come and ask me questions about my behavior or character. We do so in a loving way. Well, Jesus asks these questions. And in this text, he asks, what were you discussing on the way? Well, the disciples are reluctant to answer Jesus' question because on the way they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. So, just to get to fill the full sense of this, I mean, Jesus is kind of walking a solitary trail down to the city of Jerusalem. He understands he has a death sentence. He's communicating that to the apostles, and they are haggling and pushing and shoving, trying to, to make a case that they would be the greatest in God's kingdom. Let's say their question is. Who is the greatest among us could not be more inappropriate. It's not appropriate at all. They were not discussing wherein lies the true nature of greatness. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, which one of us is the greatest? I think that Jesus is pushing them, and and I think that his question is meant to convict them because he sees something in their heart that's often in the hearts of all of us. I wish I could say that this ends with the disciples here. There's selfish desire for the greatest in the kingdom, but I think that it's still true today. There are Christians who jockey for prominence in the assembly. And so as we examine ourselves, I think sometimes we might want to be the teacher of the class for the wrong reason. We want, might want to be the teacher of the class so that people will, 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 leap, will heap praise and approval on us, or we might want to be a deacon for the wrong reason, or a pastor, or a worship team uh, person. When people's attention, we want, we want to capture attention or something like that. This kind of reminds me of one old commentator who wrote 100 years ago. His name was F.B. Meyer. And he was talking about how even the way pastors or preachers can do good things for self-centered purposes. Listen to Meyer. He said, how many of us, the Lord's servants, are secretly cherishing some proud purpose of excelling other men or making a name for ourselves? Listen to what he says. He says, and we use the pulpit as a pedestal for the praise of the world, and we use the cross as a post on which to hang garlands for our own glory. you Meyer challenging preachers. How many of us use the pulpit as a means of securing our own glory or the cross as a pedestal on which to hang garlands for our own glory? Here, the disciples are ignorant and insensitive, and they're status grabbing. This leads Jesus to a long section of teaching. And for our sakes this morning, we won't go too far into this, but I think this section goes longer. Then most people realize, look down in your Bible at verse 35. I want to show you that uh, this whole section from 9:35 to the end uh, or till 10:31 is framed. It's framed with bookends. Look at verse 35. He sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, "If anyone would be first, he must be last." Now go to 10:31. "If anyone would be first, he must be last." Now look at 10:31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So there's this threefold pattern. Jesus predicts his death, the disciples fail, and then Jesus teaches them what it's really like to be his follower. And this teaching goes from 935 the whole way down to 1031. Jesus has a lot to say to these insensitive, status grabbing disciples. And so for the next several weeks, we'll work through these texts. But today I just want to look at the first statement that he makes, verses thirty-three through thirty-five. I would summarize this way. I think Jesus is saying to be great, you want to learn about greatness, to be great, you must be last and servant of all. Now, this principle is stated for us in verse 35. I read a portion of it, but go back there again, 935 sat down and called the twelve, said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That's the premise. It's his main response. And the imagery is powerful here. Again, Christ had detected something in their heart. A quest for greatness or significance. And so now he's going to channel that desire. You want to be great... You want to be significant in your life, let me show you how to do that. And he says uh, that this sort of person who wants to be first must be last, meaning we put priority on others before us and must be servant to all. The word servant here speaks of one whose job it was to provide for the needs of others. One man described this way, a domestic servant. One whose entire being was meant to, to serve others. And so Jesus gives this paradox here. To be great with God, you must be a servant. To be first, you must put everyone else before you. Everyone else before you. But then he illustrates that principle in verses 36 and 37. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time. He illustrates a principle. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him, it's God, who sent me. I think Jesus understands that some things are better seen than taught. And so he uses a child as an illustration in this home, maybe Peter's home. I think that there's a particular type of sacrifice that Jesus has in mind for his followers. And it includes children. Children. So Jesus takes a child here. This child is probably a child of someone, a family member in the home of the host, or maybe a child of one of the disciples. We don't know. Jesus takes the child up and embraces him in kindness. Okay, now... To get a better understanding of what Jesus is doing with this illustration, I think it's, it's good for us to ask what is the point of the illustration? What is he, what is he pushing at? And, and I've seen, I've read all kinds of different suggestions about what Jesus' point is with this illustration with this child. I don't like many of them, but I will say, I think the point that Jesus is making here is that the disciples are to be like him. If you're going to follow me, you need to be like me. You need to love for, you need to have a love for and accept weak little ones Like this. Now in our own culture in America today, I think sometimes we we tend to value someone who's good with children. That's not necessarily the case in theirs. This is going to be a reversal of the way that they typically saw things in an ancient culture like this. And so Jesus takes up the child, and he suggests that his followers must receive them. The word receive means to be ready to welcome or accept those that they might be tempted to just reject or ignore or not even notice. This is a type of serving the all. and Being last to the all I want to talk to you about is receiving little ones like this. And then he says, when we welcome or accept little ones... We're actually welcoming Jesus and the Father. And I tell you, I have really wrestled with this statement. What does that mean? Well, I do not profess to understand everything about that verse and that concept. I think that he's giving them the reason why caring for and ministering to children is important. Jesus is saying, when you minister to a child you in my name, For my my name, you minister to Jesus and to God the Father. When you care for one of these vulnerable ones, it's a form of caring for the Son and the Eternal Father. Because that's our text. Now, I want to take a brief moment, and I want to consider what Jesus says about being last of all and servant of all and receiving children has to do with our church. Well, men and women, I'll start this way. God has called Colonial Baptist Church to be a children's church. A church that receives and serves children. I want to give you four closing points of application on how I think we can do this and how we can do it better. First... This means we should prioritize ministering to children with our finances and resources. I think we do this okay, but we need to keep it on our radar. Are we using our resources to minister to our, our, our church people, financial resources to minister to and care for children? Second, we should receive and welcome children in our services. I said, boy, what, what a fitting Sunday. To have Jesus said, whoever receives one of these little ones, receives me. Today we had children ages K5 through third grade join us for corporate worship service. I want to suggest that we should be patient with them and minister to them and care for them. I think this will mean to someone who's following the words of Jesus Christ that we offer them our seats if necessary. We offer them our smiles. We care for them in Christ-like ways. This might mean for some of us that we would actually learn their names. So how would I learn the names of our children in our church? Well, we printed our member directories. They're in the back. You can pick up someone you leave. And we made a decision. Those directories are much longer than they would have to be. Okay, because we not only put the picture of the parents, we put the the picture in the name of every child underneath the family. You say, well, I can't memorize all those names. Great, I'll I'll give you freedom. You don't have to memorize all the names. Just start with the children. (laughs) Maybe you can memorize all the names of our children. Third, we should prayerfully consider how we might use our gifts to minister to children in our church and in our community. Maybe God wants you to serve as a children's Bible study teacher or in the nursery. I texted Pastor James last night, and I asked him, how many nursery workers do you try to find every week or every month? And he said, this is what he said, every month he finds between 150 to 182 people to work in nursery to 182 slots that's how many we have this month 182 Well, nursery you say the nursery i did my time already heard that joke before but you know no offense but that joke makes it sound like serving children in the nursery is like going to prison And I don't think we should just dismiss the opportunity to minister to small children with that statement. You say, you don't understand. I'm a lawyer or a professional, a professor, vice president, general, admiral, captain. Don't do children. I say, that's awesome but that shouldn't keep you from becoming great. Be great. Serve children. Receive and serve them as a form of worshiping Jesus. And serve these little children like you would Jesus himself. And so would you pray about how you might use your gifts to minister to and serve children in our assembly at Colonial? And then finally... I think some within our assembly are likely called to minister to children in strategic ways through adoption and foster care. This week I discovered through research that approximately 14 million children ages zero to four die every year, not including abortion. That would definitely add to the numbers. 14 million children between the ages of zero and four die every year. Approximately 10 million of those children die from diseases or issues that could be easily avoidable with the care and the attention of medicine. 10 million children a year. Can you imagine the overwhelming flood of tears and sorrow for 10 million children dying annually? Millions more children are physically or sexually abused before they even would ever reach the age of 13. I want to say, men and women, this grieves the heart of God. It is my belief that God will call some within colonial to care for neglected and abused children. And when they do, they should feel our unending support, care, Love, help, and prayer. This is more than a call just to give them like free babysitting, although that would be a great idea. It's a call to partner with these families to care for and minister to those who are the most vulnerable on our planet. Colonial Baptist Church must be a child serving, child protecting, child loving place or we are not Jesus' church. We're not Christ's church. This is not a call to heroic self-sacrifice. It's a call to get in line and to follow Jesus. It's not a call to loud, rambunctious, grueling, snotty nose service in a nursery. It's a call to greatness. It's a call to let the nature of and the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. Change your values and the way that you live. The way that you live. Be great.